Welcome to the All Roads Podcast, where two Sams connect everything literary, historical, mechanical, tropical, to the ancient world, to ancient Greece, to ancient Rome, because all roads lead to Rome. This is the All Roads Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Dr. Sam Kindick. And I'm Sam Hahn. Today, we're going to talk about the fourth book in the Percy Jackson and the Olympians series, uh, The Battle of the Labyrinth. Yes. Yeah, this was a... This was a this was a different one. It, it felt, I don't know, maybe it, it felt a little darker to me, Sam. Yeah, it I also felt, feel if I felt angsty. There's we'll, we'll talk yeah. about hormones. I want to talk about sex, baby. But what's your what, what's your take? What's your what are your what are your thoughts here on this book? Well, as the listeners could probably tell from the last episode, I was pretty cold on the third book. Um, and I was kind of worried that, you know, maybe the series had lost its luster for me. Um, but I really feel like this was a return to form uh, for Rick Riordan. Uh, I really enjoyed book four. I thought it is very smart in its illusions and engaging and exciting and holds kind of the, the fun of the first two books back in. And also, um, yeah, just like overall felt, smarter and kind of a like felt like the the book had a much clearer vision for what it wanted to get done and and happen within the 361 pages <laughs> of this book uh so i actually really you know i'm back in um i'm back i'm bought back into to the series um you know rick you've done it again um i really i really enjoyed this yeah i thought it was i definitely liked it better than the third book um, I'm starting to see some loops, some mythological loops be closed up. I'm going to talk yeah. about this. Um, you know, in my mind, I've got sort of a mental checklist for the adventures of Odysseus, uh, the labors of Hercules. Yeah. Uh, and we're, we're crossing a lot of things off the list here. So again, I want to come back to that, but this is a story, right? About, you know, about the labyrinth. Well, it's, it's I guess it's, it's about, you know, this, this battle between Kronos with no H, uh, though he's conflated with Cronus with an H, uh, since Cronus is called the Lord of Time and mm -hmm. is distinct from Cronus, though the ancients, uh, including people like Cicero, did begin to sort of conflate the idea of the two of them. I was going to say, was Rick a... is not alone in conflate, conflating um, no, the father no. of Zeus with the father of time. Um, yeah, there's ancient precedent for this. Yeah, and it's uh, but I guess we as li you know modern historical linguists know that they are not the the the, the people are not the the people the gods are not the same. Um, the, the titan that was, is not the same. Correct, correct, correct. Yeah, because that's right. Gods we use gods differently when we're talking about this book. Um, we're talking about the Olympian gods, mm -hmm. but we've got this battle right between the olympians and really it seems like between the children of the olympians the the olympians themselves don't seem to be you know doing a whole lot to battle uh cronus and luke but so at the um, end we we hear from poseidon and poseidon has been has been busy does feel a little bit like zeus is kind of asleep at the wheel though yeah yeah who <laughs> Yeah, so we've got this this battle right going on, and it's picking up steam. 
at the end of the book, we have Luke uh, taking on the Luke's body housing uh, Kronos. So he now has a body. That's a that's a a twist for us. But we've got the setting of this this labyrinth, right? The labyrinth of Daedalus. Uh, initially, it's going to be you know used as some sort of secret back entrance for the army of Kronos to get into to Camp Half Half Blood. Um, and so our heroes go down, descend into the labyrinth, uh, going a series of weird adventures. I found it a little confusing. Did you did you find the labyrinth? Because like sometimes they were in the labyrinth and sometimes the labyrinth would just like open up and they'd be at the Triple G Ranch or sometimes they'd go back and then they they pop out in Colorado Springs uh, at the the museum of uh, what was it? Western. It's a mining museum. Yeah, um, I've been there. I've been there. Western oh, no the Western Museum of Mining and Industry. Yeah, I went there with my family uh, a year or two ago. It was cool. I've been to the Garden of the Gods, but I haven't been to that museum though. Um, my my wife is a museum professional, so maybe one day um, I'll end up visiting. Um, I mean, in some ways, I think it makes sense for the labyrinth to be a little bit confusing, determining yeah. where you are, and you know that's kind of the the promise of the labyrinth, right? Is you can kind of pop up anywhere, and there's entrances all over the place, which again kind of I think s- captures a little bit of the spirit of like the first book is just like. There's like Greek mythology all around you. Like if you just look closely enough, you could enter the labyrinth of Daedalus, right? Um, which I think, you know, kind of, again, is what makes these books so appealing because it feels like you could end up on an adventure. You could be a demigod. You could be involved in this sort of kind of grand scheme of, you know, gods and titans and demigods and heroes and whatnot. And I think this book played really well into that. And also just the fact that we actually have a non um, half blood kind of involved in this story too. We have a normal person who's been looped in, right? Maybe you're not a half blood, but maybe you can see through the mist. And, you know, uh, I think that's kind of a, another kind of exciting way to bring people into these stories uh, in a new way. Uh, what do you, what do you, what do you think about, what do you think about Rachel Elizabeth there? Is there I mean, is there more to her? I mean, she shows up in the in the third book, right? We didn't really talk about her, but it was clear in the third book that she wasn't a normal, right, mortal. Um, the fact that she's always called Rachel Elizabeth Dare, I always thought was weird, right? Is that is it just R sure. E D red? She has red hair. Um, well, it seems like a weird, like because she's also called Rachel. Is, I assume Elizabeth is her middle name. So why 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 is she always going? You know, is her middle name thrown out there? But I mean, do you, do you think she? I mean, she has this ability, right? She can she can see through the mist, though she does not appear to be a half blood. Do you think there's more? I mean, do you think in in the the final book, you know, because Percy's like thinking about her right at the end of the book. I mean, do you think she's going to come back in book five? Um. I mean, I would assume so. I feel like it'd be odd if she's not also in the fifth book. Um, I think, you know, you said you wanted to talk about hormones and sex and, you know, romance. And I think, you know, she plays an important role. I mean, she's kind of like the not like other girls girl, which, of course, Annabeth is also kind of like that. I don't know if we're being set up for a love triangle, but also there's a lot of hinting that like 
Percy is starting to become interested in girls, right? Which makes sense for like, uh, you know, someone of his age um, to start having, you know, an interest in, in romance. And, um, you know, also Annabeth clearly still has strong feelings for Luke. And so I think there's a little bit of a setup like Percy and Annabeth, I doubt will end up together. And so he has complicated feelings about his relationship with mm. Annabeth. And I almost wonder if like, Rachel is trying to like introduce what would it be like for Percy to have a girlfriend type thing. I kind of assume so this, that that's what's going on, but is it is this a Harry Potter Hermione thing where we we think we're going down one sort of romantic road, but of course that's not how it ends up. Yeah, per, I mean perhaps you know, I think you know it, it is also valuable to model like in a book like this model like what does it look like for you know. Uh, two people who might be romantic, who could be romantically interested in each other, right? What does it look like for them just to have a, a normal, you know, friendship, I think is also, you know, valuable, right? It doesn't always have to end up in, you know, them partnering or, or something like that. Like they can, they can be friends, um, which, you know, I, I kind of assume that there's a little bit of that going on again. Um, it, it remains to be seen with the fifth book though. Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm not uh I'm not super well versed in the in this sort of age genre, the sort of young adult. So I don't know if it's if it's a generic thing where you have, you know, sort of a suggested and growing love interest and you know, sort of diversions and in, in how things wind up. But I mean, just to sort of recount, you've got Percy and Annabeth, right? And there's the kiss. Uh, there's Percy and there's Rachel Elizabeth Dare, and he's always thinking about her, and he's like, should I call her? Like, um, you got Percy and Calypso, yeah, right. Um, Calypso is is young and you know hot, and she loves Percy, and she offers everything to Percy that she offered to Odysseus, right? Uh, uh, immortal life, but also eternal youth. You've got Kelly the Impusa, who's hot. Right. She likes Luke. Luke's not interested in her. Annabeth, right, as we find out with the prophecy at the end, you know, she's afraid of losing her love. Right. Uh, and she's unclear whether that's Luke or whether that's uh Percy. Luke has feelings for Annabeth. Like repeatedly when they're, you know, when 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 he's breaking promises, he's like, We're gonna kill Percy, but first right. let me like hang out with Annabeth. Um, you've got Grover and Juniper, right? Grover's got a girlfriend now, and he's of course older, just like the actor who plays him. Right, he's much older right. than everybody else. Um, you've got Clarice and Chris Rodriguez. You've yeah, got a... Paul Blofus and Sally Jackson. Um, everyone is, you know, romance is in the air, and even the when the the little baby uh, Telkinies are like watching their little video, um, right? It's about like right. hitting puberty and like the hormones. And of course they're not going right. to start thinking about sex. They're going to start thinking about killing people, but I don't know. It just, yeah, it, maybe it's just that point in the series. Percy and everybody are, are 15 now, I think. And but it just seems like in many ways, this book seems to me like we, we hit like sort of a, a maturity threshold because we've got, you know, romance we were thinking about uh you know people romantically not that there hasn't been some of that already but it's also dark right because we have yeah. people die percy mm -hmm. goes to his own funeral um then after the battle for calf 
Camp Half Blood, which again, you know, I, there was a lot of Harry Potter uh, parallels I kept thinking of through this book. Um, right, it sort of reminds me of the people dying at the the battle for Hogwarts, but we have people die, including a named uh, camper. Yeah, so this is real. Yeah, this is starting to get real. Um, and of course, we have these this sort of moral dilemma. Um, you know, this whole time it's been so clear that Kronos and the Titans they're bad, they're evil. Uh, the good guys are the the Olympians, and now there's this question. Are the Olympians that great? Right? Is is the status quo the the best possible outcome? Who should we be supporting? Right? What have you know put otherwise, what have what have you, have the gods done for you? Right. Uh, or your parents? And in some cases it's it's not a lot. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, this is the question that you know, you're supposed to wrestle with from book 1. And it's kind of come home to roost um, in this book as we start prepping for the for the end. Um, again, because, of course, there's this prophecy, right? Percy could be the one who dooms Olympus or saves Olympus, right? And I think in order for us to see any possibility of him dooming Olympus, there has to be this real question of, are the gods actually as good as they stay? they say right um there is kind of a hollowness right we have you know the the final demigod join which allows Cronus to rise and you know percy kind of bursts in and is like don't do it and it kind of rings hollow because that that kid is like they've done nothing for me right and right it, percy's attempt to persuade this person is completely ineffective because there's no reason for that person to support the Olympians, which I think is very clear. Um, you know, they, they talk about, you know, he is portrayed as a traitor. I'm trying to remember um, this character's name. Um, is it about Ethan? Yes. Ethan. Thank you. Um, Ethan Nakamura. Yes. Thank you. Um, Ethan Nakamura, right. Is like the quote unquote traitor of the prophecy. Um, but at the same time, it's not kind of un, inexplicable why he sides against um olympus and i think you know that that is being kind of hammered home uh yet again in this book and we also though you know we, percy has increased contact with his father right there's that mm -hmm. weird scene at the end where he shows up and there's that awkward moment where you know paul blowfish is about to you know he just asked for percy's permission yeah and poseidon i don't know if he's if he's trolling this guy or what, but you know, he does, he always introduce himself as like Poseidon and just be like, yeah, this is, you know, I'm Poseidon. Right. Um, but then, you know, Percy asks him, you know, about, you know, the other kids. Cause this is again, a reoccurring theme that we've talked about in the show and we, we get a little bit in the books, but not as much as there are, there is sort of in the, the Greek <laughs> full, uh, I was going to say canon. There's not really canon, but everyone's the children of Poseidon, right? Zeus gets all this all this credit for being, you know, the Randy guy running around. Right. But Poseidon is the father of a lot. Um, right. And that's, and I think, held... because Zeus is, you know, has a partner, right? He has Hera. And so it is this, like, extra betrayal. of marriage. Yeah. Right. So, like, it is this extra betrayal in, in a way that, like, Poseidon doesn't have that same baggage. Right. 
attached to him. Um, and we actually see Hera in this book too, which I think also reinforces the whole, are the Olympians actually good? Because Hera kind of sucks. So does Hephaestus. Hephaestus also kind of sucks. Um, you know, there's a lot of this kind of revelation of like, they are kind of two-faced in a way. Who doesn't, who doesn't suck? Maybe Poseidon. I don't know. The whole, like, you're my favorite son. Like I've been a God for, you know, forever. And, you know, you've been around for 15 years and you're definitely my favorite. Right. Well, and then you have that scene, right. Where they're in the labyrinth and they run across, you know, the, the fighting arena and, you know, this, this demigod who says, oh, you know, I've been killing all these people in the name of Poseidon, the earth shaker, and I have all of their skulls, you know, and Percy confronts his dad about that. And he's like, oh, he's doing that in my name, but uh, I don't, I don't claim that. But you're like, you're not going to do anything about it. Apparently, apparently you don't really care all that much um, about it. So there is a little bit of this. Yeah, there is this kind of two-facedness like, oh, these people are doing these things in my name, but I I don't claim it. And it's, I think there was a question of like, don't you take any responsibility for what people are, people think that you want this. Isn't that a little bit on you to not be correcting them? So again, I think there are other ways in which these gods are being undermined um, in this book. And again, just where is Zeus? Um, Again, Percy still can't fly in the air, which I find kind of crazy. Um, Again, there's a lot of petty squabbles uh, Mm -hmm. still kind of happening Um, again. And yeah, in some ways, I think the book is setting up too. like, are either of these options all that good? Are the Olympians all that good? Cronus is clearly not good. Like, I don't think there's a strong argument that like Cronus will come in and it's all going to be hunky dory and things will be good. But I think there is this indication that maybe the status quo isn't what we need anymore. Um, and I'll say one more thing because I've been talking a bit, but I think we also see maybe a reflection of this kind of turn in the book with what happens with Grover and Pan in the whole council of satyrs. Cause there's kind of a dissolution of the status quo at the end, right? Silenus is basically, you know, when Grover comes back to announce that, you know, the, the great God Pan is dead, right? Silenus and members of the council say, uh, you know, this is blasphemy. You're exiled. And then the vote is split and they basically say, well, it's just time to dissolve this old institution. Things are different. We're no longer going after Pan. We have a new mandate moving forward. And I almost wonder if, I, I don't know if the final book is building up to that. Are we going to get, oh, Olympus is victorious and things remain the same? Or are we going to have a restructuring of the hierarchy um, in this mythic world? Yeah, I think that's that's a great point. I mean, if we if we think about sort of I mean, this is a, a wild oversimplification, but, you know, the sort of the reign of the Titans as, you know, sort of, you know, gods 1.0 and then the Olympians are like gods 2.0. Are we going to get sort of 3.0? Because, yeah, things are being broken. Um, long traditions are ending. Daedalus, you know, Daedalus dies, right? He's been, you know, around for a long time. I want to talk about deadless um, in a second, but yeah, I mean, it's everything you said. Yeah. I mean, I have mixed feelings as we've talked about extensively about the, the way that 
the gods are sort of changed and mythology is sort of neutered in these books. I mean, I understand why, um, cause they're for kids, but you know, s- some things feel or, or, or for the previous three books, a lot of things with the gods, with the Olympian gods felt wrong to me. You know, the whole notion of any sort of real connection, meaningful connection between the gods and their children in relation, you know, all, crap like that. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I fundamentally believe that in Greek mythology, the gods don't care. Right. I mean, they, they, they sometimes have an interest about what's going on, but they, but ultimately they don't, it doesn't affect them. Right. So we see, you know, the pettiness of the gods going back and forth and the pettiness of the gods often creates, you know, catastrophe and havoc for, for mortals. I mean, Euripides Hippolytus, you know, Aphrodite and Artemis, you know, are just sort of bitchy and they're, you know, arguing over sort of I don't know, pride and they ruin lives as a result. I mean, so that the pettiness that we get in these books, to me, that's right. right. But I also think that the two faced uh, nature, right. Also shout out to Janus. Yeah. Shout um, out to Janus. Who we got. Um, if you want more Janus, read uh, the first book of Ovid's Fosti, because um, he's the the perfect god, and and for the coming new year, right, the perfect god for um, beginnings and endings. So he's uh, yeah. as you do your New Year's resolution, think of Janus. But the two facedness, I think, is also right. You know, the whole speech, right? You mentioned where 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 Poseidon says, "Well, you know, sometimes do think people do things in our name, and you know, we don't really." you know, support that or care for that. I think that's right. Um, and I don't think they stop them. It's, it's, it's almost like the, you know, the PT Barnum quote about, you know, I don't care what you write about me as long as you spell my name correct. Um, I don't think the gods care what you do as long mm-hmm. as you keep those, those offerings coming. Um, yeah. at least in the, you know, that's my reading of, of, of Greek mythology. And we're starting to see that as things get a little more complex, we're yeah. starting to see that here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, when we think about, you know, ancient religion, you know, we think about, you know, the relationship that the Greeks and the Romans had to their deities as a very kind of quid pro quo sort of relationship, right? You do something for the God, they do something in return for you. You see this throughout, you know, Greek literature, Roman literature, right? Where people say, hey, I mean, I think all the way back to like the Iliad, hey, um, I took care of your temple for X number of years. I fixed the roof and this bad thing has happened to me. Um, God, you owe me because of the service that I've given the sacrifices that I've made. Right. And the God returns that, or, you know, the God says, I mean, famously with, we're going to get into the story of Daedalus, right? The Minotaur happens because Minos is given a bull by Poseidon that he's supposed to sacrifice and then doesn't. And so Poseidon says, fine, I'm going to have your wife fall in love with a animal, right? For not making the sacrifice to me, right? You're like, that's kind of petty, uh, but that's kind of how it works. Like you're supposed to do certain prescribed things in order to get certain prescribed returns. Um, so I think that's completely so there's, right. There's our transition, right? The story of Daedalus. Um, were you surprised that there wasn't more Minotaur? I mean, we've we saw the Minotaur right in the first book. Um, and you know, the Minotaur was defeated, but there, you know, the story 
as it's most frequently told, was that this labyrinth was designed by Daedalus to contain the Minotaur. Right. So did it, did it surprise you? No? No, I wasn't surprised. Again, I mean, in the world of Percy Jackson, it's unlikely that the Minotaur is going to reconstitute in that time. Plus, I think also in some ways, you know, you know, Luke's complaint in the first book is we just get to do the same quests that have already happened before. And I also, you know, and there's a lot of retreading for sure of mythology here. But I think we're, again, like the last book, one of our complaints was there's too little mythology here or it's kind of too straightforward. It's either too level or too little or too simple. And here I think we have a lot more complexity, new ground being tread, um, again, in similar ways. Like we have similar we have similar scenarios, but we have different solutions, right? Like the, the cleaning of the stables happens in a different way than uh, how Hercules does it. So we have this scenario, but Percy is repeating the myth in a new way. Um, which I think is refreshing too and exciting to see. You're like, oh, I know this. And there's a different outcome. There's a different solution. There's a different path, uh, which again, felt missing in that last book. Um, so again, I'm not surprised not to see the Manitar because yeah. it's a little bit expected. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, one of my favorite sort of mythic cycles is sort of the story of Crete in um, you know, in this this mythic realm, right? And it all starts, as you said, with this bull, right? Uh, King Minos asks for a bull, um, like a really great bull, and Poseidon hooks him up with a really great bull. Um, and then Minos is like, "Oh man, I got a really great bull. I'm gonna not, <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna not kill it." Um, and Poseidon doesn't like it, and so he's like, "Well, great, you can keep it, but your wife is going to, you know, desperately want to have sex with it." Um, enter Daedalus, right? So Daedalus makes a bull contraption so that Minos's wife, Pacifia, can have sex with the bull, which she does, right? And then she get, you get the Minotaur. Um, right. and Sam, you haven't read Madeline Miller's Circe. Um, not. maybe we'll talk about this sometime, but there's the there's a great, you know, the birthing of the Minotaur is a scene. Um, and we get to mm. see a little baby Minotaur. Um, which is, you know, horrific. Uh, there's there's a wood carving. I forget. I should have prepared this, but there's a wood carving I show my students um, of the Minotaur. Uh, mm. And he's like, when he's a baby, he's like this like really cute little like baby with like a little cute little bull head on it. Um, but of course he does, he does turn into a, a villain. Um, right. Or maybe he's not. Maybe he's just sort of the, the, the victim of his own nature. But the, sure. but the labyrinth is constructed to contain the Minotaur. Mm -hmm. And Daedalus is and, barely able to navigate it himself. Right. In mythology. Well, you know, I mean, you don't, I guess all you have to do is stay away from the Minotaur. Um, and we do have discussion of, of Ariadne, right. And we, we got a little bit Ari Ariadne in the third book. Right. Uh, Cause she is the wife of Dionysus. Um, and that story is explained a little bit um, in the third book. Yeah. But right, I mean, the Athenians have to send. There was a war between um, Crete and Athens, and the Athenians had to send a but an annual tribute of people to be fed to the Minotaur. And Theseus, the the, the newly arrived uh, prince of Athens, he had he had been away. He he finally got home to Athens. One of the first things he does is go 
volunteered for this death mission. He goes and he, you know, he teams up with Ariadne to defeat the Minotaur, which is always weird because Ariadne is killing her half brother. Yeah. And later Theseus is going to marry her sister, Phaedra, which is also weird. Um, but right, he goes and he ghosts Ariadne. He, you know, he, he just abandons her. And this follows um, a, a mythic tradition where Greek heroes receive the assistance of the king's daughter of whoever they're trying to defeat. I mean, like uh, Jason and Medusa is like the other kind of famous example of this. Medea. And of course, Medea, uh, Medea sorry. Um, and, you know, it always turns out bad. It turns out bad for Medea. It turns out bad for Ariadne. These poor women help these Greek heroes achieve greatness and then receive no uh, no reward for their, you know, help. I would say things turned out poorly uh, for women generally in not just Greek myth, but Greek history. Sure. And they're never uh, appropriately rewarded either. But the story of Daedalus, right? You know, so he he invents this bull, this this contraption that allows Pacifia to have sex with the bull. He constructs the labyrinth uh, to contain the Minotaur. Um, and then, of course, there's these these other sort of quasi-parallel stories of Icarus mm-hmm. and um, Perdix. And, you know, the, the Perdix things happens first um, because at least according to Ovid and, and, and Met 8, uh, right, as uh, Daedalus is burying Icarus after he falls into the sea, um, into the Icarian Sea, uh, the, the, the bird that Perdix was mm-hmm. turned into right sees like watches deadless it's kind of creepy um yeah. but this is a guy who's associated with killing young people right i mean he 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 straight up kills perdix um because he's he's threatened by him and cuz perdix invents the saw and the compass yes exactly you know that's if if you're i don't know like it's not sexy but like if you're the like person who invents the saw like it's pretty important special yeah that's it's i'm surprised they made it this far without a saw right he like made all these contraptions and this like made this maze and everything and he pushes them from the top of the the parthenon right or the, yeah you know the acropolis yeah acropolis and... so i guess maybe not the like but there's no saws they didn't so yeah. I, don't, I don't know about that but anyway he kills this kid and then he has his own kid right and I don't know. I, this is one of my favorite stories. So I, I like talking because it's it's featured in Ovid. I'm actually writing an, an an article right now for this. I'm going to a conference in Chicago to to work with people um, on this in a couple of weeks. Um, but it's fascinating because we get this story. You know, there, there's relationship between Icarus and Daedalus, and it's it's fully. I mean, it, it shows up in different ways in different places, but. The one version, and I know I'm rambling here. The one version we have the as my favorite is an it's Arzamatoria, and it's this whole thing where that you know he he builds these wings and he's talking to Icarus, and he says, you know, he like he gives him very explicit directions. Do this, don't go here. You know, he gives him constellations for um, guidance, and Icarus can't do it. Right, he's. I mean, of course, you give a twelve-year-old the the keys to a fighter jet. It's probably not going to go well. Right. But it's 
the reason it shows up in Ovid's Ars Amatoria, which is, as you know, a, a a book about how to find a girlfriend and a boyfriend in Rome, it's the only mythological story that's not about love, is because it's about teachers. And so it's particularly important to me, right? I just had my last day of teaching yesterday. I'm, you know, ear deep in grading. And it's about giving instructions to people and them not listening. Mm-hmm. And the, the reason Ovid brings it in, right, is because he's showing everyone how he's a great teacher and Daedalus, who's like, does all this cool stuff, is, is not a great teacher. But I once had a student, you know, I was tell, telling them my, my class about uh-huh. this. And a student showed me a tattoo. He's like, look, I got a tattoo of Icarus because he learned to fly. And I was like, <laughs> but you but you do know how the story turns out, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Yeah, That's so was, good. Yeah. People show me a lot of tattoos. I, I would have never guessed the number of tattoos I am shown, uh, you know, when I went into college teaching. Uh, I would have guessed that I would not be shown a lot of tattoos but i'm shot a lot of tattoos whoever gets the all roads tattoo uh yeah send us a picture yeah we'll send you a a free autographed copy of the percy jackson books autographed by us not by yeah nick not not by rick riordan (laughs) but rick if you're listening and you have the all roads tattoo let's talk so I mean, if if we're going to connect this story, you know, the story of of Daedalus, as we get it in this book, I mean, he's he's a, a a mixed figure in in the mythic record, right? I mean, he's in Athens, he kills Perdix, he is put on trial by some accounts, then he flees to Crete, he goes to Crete, right? He you know he is in cahoots with Pasiphae, he creates the Minotaur, he you know. Minos hates him. He's then imprisoned. Then he flees, but his son dies. Um, and then he goes to this other king. Um, and, and he's just always on the move. He's always doing like, I mean, it's it's great stuff, it's inventive stuff, but it's it's shady stuff, right? I mean, how does do we get that in this book? Do you think? I mean, there's lots of hinting at it, right? A lot of people are like, you can't trust Daedalus, is like the number one piece of advice people have you don't he's not actually going to support you and he kind of proves everybody wrong in the end right he actually does have a heart of gold or you know uh gears of gold where his heart would be because of course he's you know we have we have mark five uh uh daedalus in this book because he's created an automaton for himself which i thought was pretty was pretty clever i i thought that was kind of a cool twist because of course you meet quintus um early in the book and you're like okay this guy's named five is he a roman guy who's getting right exactly in? it's latin right and everything right. has been pretty much greek so yeah that that did flag for me so again i liked that because i was like i don't know who this is and then i was like oh i'm daedalus i'm like oh that's weird and then he's like oh this is my fifth uh, automaton body and i was like okay that's cool uh um, yeah you got me there um, I mean, yeah, I mean, he's clearly got this, like, I think you are supposed to feel complicated about him. And that's kind of what Annabeth calls him out for in the book, right? She's like, 
you know, in, you know, in this, this mythology, I don't know if this is based in any antiquity, but, you know, he is a, he's a child of Athena. And apparently the children of Athena aren't actually uh, born because Athena has sex with people. Again, we had this question about, she's a maiden goddess. How does she have kids? But her children are born in the same way that she's born kind of as, you know, um, they're kind of children of thought kind of bursting from the mind sort of, sort of thing. We don't get the specifics, but I have things to say about this though. Okay. Well, let me wrap up and just say, you know, Annabeth calls out Daedalus and says, you're very clever, but you're not wise. Right. And that's kind of like his turn at the end. And I think that is kind of like a good presentation of Daedalus. Like he's, he's got great ways of making things, but he does kind of the stupidest stuff with it. Like making this like weird contraption for the queen to have sex with a bull, like clever, but is this a smart, is this the right thing to do? Same thing with the lot, you know, it's like a lot of his inventions, you say, well, that's, you know, cool and clever, but like, is that actually a good thing for you to create? Um, so I, I think, I think in that way he's captured well, um, cause yeah. he has a brilliant mind, but kind of put to maybe more nefarious purposes. Um, and I, I, that, you know, that, that, statement or that question that Annabeth, you know, clever but not wise. You know, I it made me think then about whether I mean, because we say Athena's the goddess of wisdom, but I think in many ways she's the goddess of cleverness. Um sure. as it extends to sort of scheming, like crafts, but also, you know, military and you know, Odysseus, Eutropian right. uh scheming. Right. So I don't know if it's wisdom per se. Um, and Daedalus is not usually the son of Athena. I didn't think um, so. It makes sense here, though, in the, in this story. Right. Um, and you, I think you always have to sort of oversimplify who the parents are because these people are the children of like the god who's like the great step nephew of some other god. It's like it's very complicated, right? But the whole like. You know, Athena being born from the head of Zeus. I mean, I, we've talked about it a little bit on this show already. You know, it's it's a complicated story. You know, when you're when you're when you're reading the myth, you're trying to understand. You know, what what in the Hades is going on here? Um, and there's it's it, it's a great it's sort of for me it encapsulates myth. It sort of sums up the power and the complexity of Greek myth. Um, not that we totally understand it. Not that you know everything I'm going to say is is everything we have or you know whatever. But I mean, the story is that Zeus gives birth to Athena from his head, right? You know, he 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 marries. Lying air quotes. He marries the goddess Metis. Um, and again, she's the goddess of of wisdom. And it's right after it's the first thing Zeus does after he becomes the head of the king of the gods. Right. And so it makes sense for a king to be associated with wisdom. So he, you know, he marries mm-hmm. wisdom, then he he, you know, has sex with wisdom, then he eats wisdom. Um, and so that it explains the sort of mythological need of, you know, kings have wisdom. Um, you've got these entities that are both anthropomorphic, but also sort of the embodiment of, of, you know, more abstract concepts. Yeah. Um, and then Zeus is, you know, gives birth to Athena from his head because every time, 
you know, God's bad a thousand is how I put it. God's whenever gods have sex, there's always a child. Um, I can't think of any examples of there not being a child. So he's impregnated Metis. He has to give birth to her. So she pops out of his head. And, you know, this is interesting. I see this as a reflection of male anxiety over the reproductive system, right? Yeah. Um, and it completely responds to that prophecy that we've talked about that doesn't come true. Um, it also was a response for Zeus um, to the fact that Zeus overthrows his father, just like his father overthrew his father, right? This intergenerational um, struggle. So that's sort of encapsulated there. Um, so we've got some abstract concepts. We've got intergenerational, you know, longer story arc, mythic things. But it's also a reflection of the way that the Greeks thought about biology. It wasn't that Zeus, you know, Athena pops out of Zeus's head because that's where thoughts come from, right? They didn't think thoughts right. came from your head. They came thoughts came from your stomach. Because um, if you feel anxious, you feel it in your stomach. You don't have any nerve endings in your head, so you don't feel it in your brain. Um, but they thought that um, the head was the site of, and this is one of my favorite words. I learned it from a student a couple of semesters ago, spermatogenesis, right? Sperm was created in the head, right? They knew the head was important. They, they weren't sure like why they didn't get why. Mm -hmm. um, but there was a theory that, you know, semen was, came from the head. Um, and so if a woman gives birth out of her reproductive organs, which makes sense, um, it makes sense that a man would give birth in the seat of his spermatogenesis. So there's hmm. a biological um, explanation to the story as well. And then it, the, the story gets picked up later in places like the Oresteia, um, right? And the, the third play of the Oresteia, there's this trilogy written by Aeschylus and the, uh, the Furies um, or the Eumenides. There's this explanation that Apollo gives um, in the first ever murder trial, if you're interested in legal thrillers or true crime fiction, pick up The Furies. And he says, listen, mothers have no relationships between their children, with their children. Right. Mm -hmm. Women are like uh, like the, the soil that you plant a seed in. They nurture the seed, but they're not genetically connected to the seed. And so right. mothers are not related to their children. And Athena's like, yes, that that seems right to me because right. I don't have a mother. And so it's, it's, again, it goes back to this sort of anxiety about the reproductive process. It's also one of the reasons that Athena is less female as I see it, uh, yeah. than she's often given credit for. She's not masculine, but she's also not feminine. Um, and so this, this connection between Annabeth and her mother is not something, it, it is distant, but I'm not sure it would be there. Uh, based on the Athena of myth, but also the sort of giving birth from children from your head, there is an explanation and it's not, you know, the, the, the love of knowledge and thoughts and, and also Athena helps Annabeth's dad get his degree at Harvard, right? Without Athena's help, he would have never finished it. That's what we learned in the first book. Mm -hmm. That seems, that seems a little a weak and B unfair. Yeah. That's true. Getting divine help. It's cheating. Yeah. Um, 
No, I I, th I thought about the the Oristia as well and the Eumenides that final play. It kind of ties in a lot of this. Um, there's definitely like echoes of you know like revenge comes up a good bit in this book too. Right, Nico wants to get revenge on Percy for the death of Bianca, and of course that gets resolved when Bianca is summoned. Um, in the same way that Odysseus, you know, communicates with the dead in the Odyssey. Uh, well, I mean, they don't pour Coca-Cola in in the in the earth in the Odyssey, but you know, I thought that was kind and of cheeseburgers. Fun. Yeah, happy meals, it, which I thought the, was pretty pretty fun. Uh, yeah, you I like the, the dead the, with food. The ghost was um, like, "Can I have the toy?" <laughs> uh, which you know, I thought that was a pretty fun remaking. Again, I enjoyed this book a lot more. You know, there's a lot of that revenge um stuff. Athena's here. Of course, you know, Ethan is the son of Nemesis. So like there's very much this like, you know, interest in, you know, revenge in this book, which is of course what the Oristia is very interested in. Um and also just, you know, I don't think this directly ties to what I was talking about earlier about are we going to keep the status quo or not? You know, the humanities is interesting because we have this trial at the end. We have the first kind of court instituted by Athena to decide whether or not Orestes has to pay for murdering his mother, who, you know, Clytemnestra, who famously killed Agamemnon, right? And the argument is actually he's not really related to his mom uh, because of the reasons that uh, uh, Dr. Sam just laid out. Um, Athena says something about the male always comes first. Right. Mm -hmm. They're like, which, you know, is kind of wild for, you know, a female goddess to say. And then kind of at the end, the court, you know, is supposed to decide, you know, the guilt or innocence of Orestes. And Athena kind of just circumvents it. She establishes a court and actually says, actually, I kind of get to decide how this goes. Um, so there is this also kind of like question of the status quo again, like the gods like have these creative things, but also break it when it like suits their suits their needs right we're gonna set a court but if i don't really like the results we'll just kind of budge the results in the end um yeah it's it's it just came i don't i can't believe i never thought about this but you, you know it's the first murder trial or could you say orestes was arrested um i wouldn't he went but maybe you can <laughs> i love me a good dad joke pun uh, and I, I don't know, never, never put two and two together. I'm sick right now. So maybe it's the, like the delusional, you know, the cough medicate medicine coming through my head. Um, but that makes sense to me. And I was also, you know, that I think, I mean, the Oristia is so important, um, yeah. for so many reasons, but one of the reasons is it's this threshold moment of human progress, right? It's the transition from this sort of old system where blood vengeance sort of ruled the day if, you know. I kill you, your son kills me, and so my son kills your son, and your grandson kills you. My back and forth, and 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 the the institution of a, a trial by your peers, which as you said is immediately undermined by Athena. Um, you know, it is this sort of threshold moment because it comes right after the Trojan War, um, and the Trojan War itself is sort of this like liminal moment where you know, you go from a period where the gods are coming down and intervening and helping people to a you know quote unquote historical time, right? Where we, we we have history recorded without gods. And so it's I was just occurred to me that, you know, in something like the Theogony, right? Hesiod's Theogony, this sort of poem about the 
the the order of all the gods and you know who gives birth to who which is very much where we've been sort of dwelling in this this these books and then this podcast there is this sort of divine progress there's this generation they're replaced by this generation and there's this generation and, and then we, we sort of get to zeus and there's stability um but then what we have is human progress first through the ages of man right where there's literally different versions of humans i mean they're not they don't evolve out of the other they're, they're killed um right. and then where you know we're in the terrible iron age which is the worst but you know we've been around for a while so maybe we won um but you also start to get in myth the evolution of human stuff right the first trial in the furies in you know the story of jason and the argonauts the first boat um and so you get human progress because divine progress has has already been sort of frozen in place right are we now with percy and this sort of looming war I mean, is this just another major threshold moment where the divine stability is is going to be changed? What does that mean for humans, right? I mean, we've we've talked about how the golden age under Kronos is or was, you know, this idyllic, you know, Garden of Eden esque type thing, but it it didn't last. And of course, the Kronos we get in these books is you know, always talking about destruction and fire and burning the thing down. What does this mean for humans? I mean, there's not a lot of thought about what's going to happen to normal mortal people. What's going to happen to Rachel Elizabeth Dare's um, land developing father. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's also why she's here in the book too. I think we're also trying to raise the stakes for the humans who are going to suffer Right. This is, you know, Percy's mom is getting remarried. So we have another connection to the mortal world. You know, there are kind of real stakes in New York, which is kind of, I think, where things are going to culminate, obviously, because, of course, Olympus is there. Um, Speaking yeah. of, of Paul Blofus, do you think we saw? Uh, you think we saw Uncle Rick in that first chapter? We get this description of Mr. Blofus. He's at school. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to find it. I'm flipping through my book. You know, and he's like, uh, he's like kind of handsome. I think he's got some like salt and pepper hair. And he's like, he's dressed kind of cool for a teacher or something like this. Maybe. I mean, I think Rick obviously has a soft spot in his heart for teachers of myth and ancient history and things like that uh because of course chiron is kind of given a similar treatment in the books i feel like there's a little bit of rick and chiron as well um there's obviously kind of a reference to his i think teaching out in san francisco because of course annabeth is going to san francisco at the end to go to school out there near her dad which i assume is kind of a reference to you know um, his his teaching uh, time out in San Francisco. Um, so I think there's a little bit of Rick sprinkled throughout. He obviously has strong feelings about teaching the the encounter with the Sphinx. You, it's, <laughs> yes. cl- it's clear that he has a lot of disdain for um, some of the kind of, um, you know, 
uh, the worst bits of of modern education. So standardized um, tests, yeah, standardized tests. Um, he goes after, and he's done that in a couple of other uh, places too, um, in in his books. So I I don't know, maybe maybe it is. Did you find the description? Yeah, it's it's actually right. It's on page one. With his salt and pepper hair, denim clothes, and leather jacket, he reminded me of a TV actor, but he was just an English teacher. And it just reminded me, I'm a you know I'm a fan of of Dan Brown and the the Robert Langdon books. Sure. And Robert Langdon is a hundred percent Dan Brown. Um, you know the way he he, he always wears like a you know a turtleneck, and it's the way that Dan Brown's like always presents himself. Uh, which like you know I. I write some fiction too. And of course, you know, we're always, you know, we're always in there. Um, Usually it's a cooler version. For me, it's a less cool version because it's, I'm trying to make it realistic. Um, I can't have just me because everyone would be like, that's just not possible. My my wife is also an author. And whenever she writes her books, you know, I can see who, who she is in the book where she has inserted herself sometimes completely without realizing it and then if they're you know connected to a male partner in any way i'll be like is this is this me what part of this character is is me that you're you're thinking about is this um, is this what you want me to be is this what you don't want me to be um, yeah yeah i think it's kind of inevitable that you kind of you know i mean you have you have a certain amount of lived experience and you've got to write from some basis of knowledge yeah. uh so it makes sense that you have a little bit of yourself in there so i don't know maybe maybe that is rick Having seen pictures of Rick, I don't know that he's a leather jacket wearing type, but I don't know. Who knows? Let's say maybe he imagines if he was like, if I was just a little edgier as a English at good at the goods, good school. Right. You pointed out the Westover Academy. Now I'm thinking more about what the names mean. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So it's good. I also, we didn't really touch on this and you know, there's not much to say, but I, I did like the fact that it did start at a, you know, at a school yeah. in the, the mortal world. So it yeah. felt like we were back in this sort of pattern of the first two books. So the last, the last thing I want to talk about today is just to sort of where we've come, you know, what we've done and, and where we're going, right? We've read four books. There's one book left. Um, I had read book four a while ago. I didn't really remember it much, but neither one of us have any clue what book five is about. We're probably going to have to go back and frantically edit the first uh, eight episodes for all the stupid and incorrect things we said. But as I said at the beginning of the, the the show, you know, you sort of go through and I'm looking at, you know, the, the adventures of Odysseus and, you know, I think we've done everything right we, with Calypso. Now with the, um, the cattle of the sun, we, you know, we, we've sort of gotten all of the, the stuff. The only thing we haven't gotten, Sam, is a war. You think that you think there's a war coming in this book? I feel like this is uh, my expectation for book five. And I think I said this from the, from book one is that yeah. book five is going to be going to be playing with the Iliad a lot um, is my expectation. I think it'll play with the theogony right off. We are, you know, Typhon is like been set up as, Oh, he's stirring under Mount St. Helen after, you know, Percy's um, kind of explosion of power um, before he, you know, lands up in uh, Calypso's island. You know, Typhon is an important um, character in, you know, 
Zeus's story, he's kind of considered one of the greatest kind of threats to Zeus's power and is ultimately defeated, but imprisoned, you know, in mythology under Mount Etna um, on Sicily. Um, again, here we have it moved um, to Montana. Is that right? Is that where Mount St. Helen is? Regardless. Um, and, oh, no, Washington. Washington. Yeah, I don't know what I was saying with Montana. It's obviously Washington. Um, but anyways, we I think we have that set up. I think we there's going to be playing with the Iliad in the fifth book. And obviously, I think it's going to be a little bit of a reacting, reenacting of what happens in the Theogony uh, with Kronos and the Titans and Typhon and like all of these kind of great cataclysmic events. Uh, that's my expectation because we've gotten a lot of these kind of one-off adventures um, but we haven't had kind of something on an epic scale and uh, the last book is quite long. Um, so it'd be fitting for it to engage with an epic about war. Yeah. I mean, I think that makes sense though. I mean, the, the, again, the Trojan war is sort of this, it's a human affair. It's not a divine affair as I mean, the, the, the gods are there and they, they have side taken sides, but you know, as we see right at the end of the first book um, of the Iliad, right there, says, you know, that there's tensions are high between the Trojans and the, the Achaeans, the Greeks, and tensions are high between Agamemnon and uh, Achilles. And then there's this like little, you know, the camera zooms out and then comes back into like Mount Olympus and the gods are like having a dinner party and they all bond over mocking Hephaestus. And then at the end of the book, Zeus and Hera go and have sex. And it's a reminder that the gods are there and they they take sides, but they, at the end of the day, they don't really care, right? They, you know, it's like they're disagreeing over a sporting event, but like not a rivalry game. Um, so I don't know. I mean, that's, I'm just trying to think what else, because we have checked off so many of the myths, right? We've done most of, um, most of the, the sort of labors of Hercules that we could right. do. Um, travels of odysseus yep. theseus perseus yep. we've done a perseus. lot of um yeah we've kind of jason you know we've kind of run out of i mean i don't know there are plenty of other heroes lesser known heroes that we could dive into but some of the greats again that's why i feel like achilles hasn't had his due yet um we haven't really had an engagement with achilles um and you know it seems like this is the time to do it uh, but it remains to be seen uh, yeah, and it's I'm, called, it's I'm called the Last Olympian, right? The Last Olympian is what it's called, I think. Yeah, the Last Olympian. Cool. So it's, uh, I guess the question is, is it is it Percy? Is it somebody? Is it Nico? Is it why didn't Percy had this opportunity right with Calypso, where he could just sort of remove himself from the right. the board. But he decides not to. Presumably the prophecy would have been fulfilled with somebody else. Is that or you know, would it would have never been Percy in the first place? It would be Nico. You know, could Percy have saved everybody by staying with Calypso? I mean, I mean, that's the I mean I think it's a question of like how much of a real choice does Percy have in staying with Calypso? Like Again, she kind of has that promise, like, oh, like you can escape your fate if you just stay with me. 
but also, you know, in the book, at least, right. She's like, I'm fated to forever be with men who will abandon me. Like I'll have companionship for a little bit, but they're always going to leave. So I almost wonder like, is it actually really an option for them to, to be together or, you know, I, I, I kind of don't see that there is a way for Percy to actually stay with Calypso. Yeah. I mean, I guess we'll, we'll never know. I mean, it's, if, if it's a prophecy, like we've seen elsewhere um, in Greek history and literature, you know, Percy stays and it turns out it wasn't about him in the first place. Sure. Um, Cause you can't, you can't beat the prophecies. Right. Um, but we do right at the end of the book, you know, Percy climbs out before he has his final encounter with Nico. He climbs out on the fire escape and plants that little, uh, the little plant that he got from Calypso. So she's still there mm-hmm. in his in his heart, in his heart. Yeah, his heart that's not made of gears, like uh, like Daedalus. Yeah. Well, any last thoughts about uh about this book? No, but I do want to say to our listeners, thank you for listening. Uh, as always, we're so delighted that we get to share these episodes with you. And we hope that if you've enjoyed our podcast, that you'll leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps more people find the show. It, it boosts our presence in the algorithm and just helps get more people excited about Percy Jackson and the Greek and Roman classics. Uh, you can always email us at allroadspod at gmail.com. Uh, let us know your thoughts. Send us any questions. If you disagree uh, with anything, let us know and send us ideas for future episodes of the show. This has been, oh yeah. What? Go ahead. I was just going to say, thanks for listening. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for listening. This has been Sam Han and Dr. Sam Kindick. And remember if all roads lead to Rome, then why not take a detour with us? Goodbye. Bye.